Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Rebecca Lynch from the Wisconsin Working Families Party is sitting across from me. Rebecca, good morning. Good morning, Matt. And as always, Robert Craig, the Executive Director here at Citizen Action is with us, but he is joining us via phone. Robert, I believe, is in Eau Claire. Robert, welcome. Uh, no, I'm in Wausau, but uh, good morning. I was no last night. All right. I wasn't sure if you had made that trek yet. So uh, welcome, Robert. Um, we have a number of topics that we're going to talk about. We're, we're going to talk about the GOP tax cut plan, which is going to be jammed through the House this week, and uh, the Senate remains in doubt. And we're also going to be joined by Representative Jonathan Brostoff to talk about a new wetlands destruction bill, uh, AB 547, uh, that Jonathan will enlighten us and educate us about. We're going to talk a little bit about the 2018 election that's heating up. We have some special elections that are going to be occurring uh, in December and January. We're also going to talk a little bit about the governor's race, talk a little bit about early voting. We also have some other issues that we will get to later in the show. But with that, let's dive in and talk about the big federal, the big national issue, and that is this ridiculous tax cut plan. It is not a tax reform plan uh, that, as as we've talked about, and I think most of our listeners know, largely distributes most of it to the wealthy and also has significant and permanent corporate tax cuts that seems to have gotten our Senator Ron Johnson a little concerned, Rebecca. Are are we surprised to hear Ron Johnson speak out against this uh, pig of a bill? You know, it's not the first time that Ron Johnson has rejected a controversial, um, you know, conservative right-wing bill for not being being right-wing enough. So this time around, uh, you know, Senator, our Senator Ron Johnson has said that he opposes it because there are huge tax cuts, tax cuts for corporations, but not for all corporations. So not for pass-throughs, which could be small businesses, but could be, you know, as large as a Trump organization. Maybe small businesses like his own. Is that right? Is that is right. that? Is that possible? Could there, no, that's not possible, is it? That's exactly right. So so all of a sudden, uh, the bill's in jeopardy, though, as, as you pointed out to me before the pod, uh, we should caution folks that it's very possible and likely that he could flip back into being in the yes column. Um, but still, I think this bill is really in jeopardy in the Senate. Uh, today, the House is poised to vote on it, and I'm sure it'll pass. Uh, and then we've got the Senate, where they need, uh, you know, under the bird rule, which means that you wouldn't need the 60 votes. You would need just 51. It has to be part This is part of budget reconciliation. It's a very obscure rule. It can't add a certain amount to the deficit, including after 10 years. And so they've got to try to fit the parameters of this bill into those confines of not adding to the b- deficit in order to have that lower threshold of 51. And even with that, the bill is in jeopardy. So, but it, it, is, it, it does appear it'll fly through the House today, given the august body of rational thought that it is, uh, but the Senate is where the interest is. Robert, obviously, we talked a little bit about uh, Ron Johnson. Uh, this is similar to what he did at the health with the health care bill, where he tried, it seemed like he was trying to make himself appear very independent, very thoughtful, almost as if he was against where the Republicans are, when in some ways he it's not doesn't go far enough for him to, to the right. So we should be very leery of just how serious he is. Uh, I think that's right. It's a lot like the posturing on health care. And 
just like on health care, when I heard that Ron Johnson was against, I eagerly waited his CNN interview this morning, uh, where he was on live for a good 10 minutes to hear how he thought perhaps that the tax cuts were going to corporations and not average people and things like that, and heard virtually none of that from him. In fact, he carried on endlessly about how we need the tax system to be centered on growth, which, of course, uh, uh, again, re- repeats the canard that somehow big corporations aren't creating jobs because they don't have enough money when they're sitting on unprecedented cash reserves. They just don't have investments they could make that would be money makers because there are enough consumers with money in their pockets in order to buy their products and services uh, because, we've, because we're starving people's wages and, uh, and, and the economy is turning into a low-wage service sector economy at a rapid rate. And so I did hear some dickering, as Rebecca said, about pass-through corporations, uh, and that's a complicated issue. Uh, but it seems to me that, that Senator Johnson just likes to be relevant and likes to be on CNN and likes to have his name in the headlines, but that he is so incredibly right-wing and so nonsensical in his, in his policy views that to rely upon him to uh, play a role in killing this tax bill is a, is, is, is a foolhardy endeavor. So we should just, like— look away and not pay attention to this and look at the, the serious legislators in the, in the U.S. Senate to figure out what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, so Ron Johnson is the first hard no among the Republicans. And as, you know, Robert just mentioned, it's very likely that he could switch back. Uh, but there are a lot of folks who are leaning no. So, you know, John McCain, Flake, Corker, Murkowski, Collins. I mean, there's a, a quite a number of uh, Republicans whose votes are needed who have some very serious concerns about this tax bill. Look, I, I think it's clear that this thing is vulnerable in the Senate. And another reason why it should be and, uh, and we think is important, and Robert, I want to get your uh, comments on this. Uh, huge issue in this is the to get rid of the, the individual mandate on the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, we've talked about sabotage. This is right in line with all-out sabotage and doing it in a budget bill right after we've had a full discussion of, of health care and they've couldn't even pass it. So to do it this really surreptitious way. Let me say one more thing about the tax element of this before the sneak attack on health care, and that is their justification for taking away a ton of different tax breaks that are for average working families and and a majority of them for for people with kids is that, oh, well, we're increasing the standard deduction, right? But when they dramatically reduce the corporate top of tax rate, uh, corporate tax rate, they don't remove all of the deductions that corporations take in order to often pay like General Electric zero, um, zero basically on the tax bill. And so it, it, it just shows it's really a corporate tax break. It has nothing to do uh, with helping individuals whatsoever. And the majority of the public, this is their problem, does not think giving huge tax breaks to corporations will help the economy. So their whole theory of the case is not agreed to by the public. But then you add to that, Matt, as you just said, health care, right, where you would think they would have learned that people don't want sabotage of the health care system, right, after the failure of at least, by my count, Trump, uh, Trump care 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. Uh, now I guess it's, it's 3.5 or something. It's just getting rid of the individual mandate. Uh, and it, a lot of people are confounded by the fact that why would you do something highly unpopular and throw it into a tax bill that's already unpopular, and, in fact, I heard a House Republican on CNN this morning saying that, saying that the House side didn't do that, and they probably shouldn't be doing that because it will make it harder to pass. But it shows how incredibly committed conservatives are 
in rolling back health care, both radically restricting Medicaid, undermining and eliminating the Affordable Care Act, and ultimately going after Medicare. And it's an ideological thing. They don't believe it's the role of government, but they won't say that because they know now more than ever the public thinks it is and thinks that, that, that our Democrat government should go further. And so here you have another bait and switch where they hope if they sneak it into the tax bill, the public won't notice, and they can get it done. So the shocking thing is both how undemocratic this is and how incredibly committed they are to doing this, regardless of the consequences politically for themselves. It tells you what an implacable enemy they are and how dangerous the situation we're living in right now with these folks having majorities of Congress and having the presidency. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, you know, we'll see what happens uh, with tax reform. Uh, as Matt mentioned, you know, we've got the House vote today that's very likely to pass. I mean, if every single Democrat uh, votes against it, they only need uh, they could still pass it even if 22 Republicans defect. And I think we'll see some defections from states like New York and New Jersey, where uh, the, the SALT, the state and local taxes, um, aren't able to be written off unless, you know. Well, I think that's probably what we'll see with it still passing. Meanwhile, the Senate uh, Finance Committee is going um, into like the third day of public hearings. We could see a vote on Friday. Um, and if if there is support for it, then there could be a vote in the Senate as early as Thanksgiving, according to The New York Times. But uh, as mentioned before, it sounds like there is um, very murky prospects indeed. Um, which would, you know, cast into doubt the possibility of getting this bill on President Trump's desk by Christmas, which is what he has asked for. So we should all stay tuned on that, I think. With that, we do want to encourage our listeners. You know, Senator Johnson is a strange individual, to say the least, but it is important that we keep pressure on him. And I think it's important that we also keep pressure on him about this individual mandate, right? This in, 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 in not supporting this. So folks, please contact uh, Senator Johnson's office. We'll have the contact info. Um, but also it's important to point out uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin, of course, is in opposition to this legislation and we should uh, encourage and thank her for that and her leadership against uh, this stuff. But uh, folks, please make sure we get out and contact uh, Senator Johnson. But with that, we are going to take a break. On the back side, we're going to be joined by Representative Jonathan Brostoff to talk more about this new, awful GOP legislation that will go after our wetlands. So we'll see you right after the break. And again, this is Battleground Wisconsin. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action, and you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. You can also find us at Facebook. We're very active there. So we are going to talk about a new piece of legislation uh, that is being introduced by the Republicans, and we're joined by Representative Jonathan Brostoff. He's a representative from here in the Milwaukee area. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I um, want to thank you for pointing this piece of legislation out to us, and um, I'll get in, we'll get into the details of it, but it's a, it's a piece of legislation that is going to degrade our, our regulation of wetlands or even ability to have wetlands, but also want to give you a shout out. You, you predicted this when you came on our show about two months ago and talked about Foxconn and said, and we're talking about the how it was going to impact the wetlands and how they had changed and rolled back. But you predicted that this was likely going to become statewide. So here we are. Tell us about 
what they're up to and uh, what's going on with this uh, piece of legislation. Sure. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. This is kind of, you know, in, when we had the Foxconn, there was two major components to it. One that everyone knew about, which was kind of the sexy, flashy part, the $3 billion of corporate handouts that you know, was was also wildly inappropriate. But on top of that, there was a significant environmental component. And that is, uh, was isolated to this specific geographic area, which was bad enough, especially given the flooding that they'd seen in southeastern Wisconsin and in the region they were talking about. But what they want now is to extend that uh, statewide and basically get rid of the opportunity um, to... Uh, have the protections we have now for wetlands. So they've introduced AB 547, which is the Wetlands Destruction Bill, and this um, is kind of a WMC wish list sort of bill. But after the Foxconn went through and we're able to give it away for that deal, they basically said, well, you know, we're going to take this statewide and we want to expand this completely. So... Um, one of the things that people should realize is how, first of all, how vitally important wetlands are to the state for a couple different reasons. And when you talk about wetlands, you know, I think uh, it's it can be a little, it's, it's hard to grasp exactly. Um, and just like the mining thing, it took a little bit of time to educate exactly what the environmental impacts could be. Um, but wetlands are super vital when it comes to flood mitigation. And unfortunately, in Wisconsin, over the last 10 years, we've seen some pretty severe flooding. And especially, um, you know, given the significant impact that can have on one's home or business, uh, you know, we don't want to get in the way of the kind of mitigating natural resources we have. Uh, but it also helps with water quality. And there's a lot of really um, vital, uh, you know, pieces. There's a lot of vital kind of creatures to our ecosystem that live in our wetlands as well. So that also affects the hunters. So what they did when they opened this can of worms on the spills really went after three disparate groups that I don't think ever worked together before, and that's kind of interesting. I think we can form a coalition to stop it through that. We have the environmentalists, and that's obviously statewide. Wisconsin has a strong environmental history, and we're pretty progressive in that regard when it comes down to it. But they also went after the hunters, people that like shooting things that live in wetlands, like you know ducks and stuff like that. And that's also pretty, you know, sporting heritage is a significant part of our state. And they're also going after people who are in these areas that experience pretty severe flooding. Now, it's not necessarily the Milwaukee-Madison area, but when you talk about, uh, you know, what they call, quote-unquote, outstate Wisconsin, this hits pretty hard, especially, you know, La Crosse, Eau Claire, um, Appleton, uh, the Fox Valley in general, this is something that I think is going to mobilize a lot of different people across the state when they figure out what it is. And the, the game is going to be kind of this. The Republicans and the WMC want to force it through before anyone realizes what's happening. And we've got to educate and mobilize before they're able to. So real quick for our listeners, what is the key changes that are occurring in this in this bill that make it so dangerous that have already occurred with the Foxconn? Sure. So the, the key component is we have um, protections for our non-federal wetlands. There are other wetlands in the state that are, and that's about 80% of the wetlands that have, for now, federal protections. But there's also these non-federal wetlands that are pretty unique to Wisconsin um, that you know, in 2001, I believe, we, you know, kind of secured these protections over. And there's you know, kind of been this fight back and forth um, between a lot of the business interests who want to dredge and fill and develop these areas um, because, 
you know, you, you can, you know, you can develop and make money off of in certain, you know, you know, certain cheaper attractive areas. But um, it's also this sort of thing that is, you know, just uh, can can wreak so much havoc. And in a lot of ways, this is going to be much bigger than the mining bill um, and much more devastating. So that's kind of where we're at. And uh, I'm on the committee that it comes in front of. So I was given kind of a heads up because I try to do a lot of research on all the legislation that comes in front of licensing. So so what you, you mentioned that the goal here, you believe, is to jam this through before the public can, can kind of get wrap its arms around it. What what is the timeline? What are you expecting? It's going to go through your committee. When do you, mm-hmm. a public hearing very quickly, or what's yeah. the, what's the thought? Well, one of the things about the committee they put on notice this didn't go in front of natural resources. This committee is licensing, so you'd ask, well, that doesn't really make sense. Why would it go in front of a licensing? It's not really a licensing issue per se, but they can put in front of whatever committee they want as the speaker, you know, is, is interested. And, and also keep in mind, this is a bill coming from leadership on both sides. Steinecke and Roth were the, were this assembly and senators, a senator who introduced it. Um, so leadership wants, this. this is a big payoff for their business interests for AFP, WMC, and their other, you know, kind of big business folks. But why would they put in front of licensing? Well, that committee is kind of, you know, doesn't give a lot of heads up on their public notice. It's chaired by Horlacher as opposed to the Natural Resources Committee, which is chaired by Cleefish, who is a duck hunter and probably doesn't like this sort of thing and probably wants to protect the hunting heritage. So I think they put it in front of their one to, to do it quickly and two so that there wouldn't be a ton of um, blowback from the committee chair, um, Horlacher, again, versus someone like Cleefish, who I think would take much issue with a bill like this in his committee. So, um, yeah, so that so they want to jam it through probably early December is what I'm hearing, although we haven't been given a heads up. I've been in contact with his office and the committee clerk staff. So as soon as I know, we'll get the word out, but probably early to mid-December, and then we haven't heard what the strategy is on the Senate side yet, but I know Senator Larson is checking into that. Robert, question? You see this, Jonathan, is essentially a codification of, of the uh, what Foxconn got on wetlands. Oh yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yes, a hundred percent. It's completely. It's it's not only uh, codifying it, um, but it's making it statewide. And then, what's interesting about the coalition that you outlined that's for it is you have the big in, biggest big business interest WMC, which is one of the major creators of Scott Walker, right? Mm-hmm. And manufacturing tax credit, the Foxconn deal. This is their economic policy we're suffering under. But then you have the ideological group. So Americans for Prosperity is that it's the leading Koch brother group, really, Koch brother funded group. So it's both a business interest, but it's heavily ideological. And so this is all coming together. It's like what we talked about in healthcare, where the conservative mission is to remove the government role entirely in protecting the environment and allow 19th century exploitation, really. Yeah. And so if you allow the exploitation of wetlands this way, you cause a lot of flooding, especially as we face the, the warmest climate in, in, in human history, uh, but in addition, it, it threatens water quality, which is a threat to the whole state at a tremendous level, but they don't simply don't think it's the government's role. If, they, if someone wants to go and, and move a wetland, uh, then they should be able to do it as long as they can make a buck 
doing it. Yeah, that's a great point. And and just to touch on a, a subtlety you said there that's really important, you know, moving the not all wetlands are created equal. So one of the arguments that they've made is that, well, we can just have the 1.2 acres, you know, we can replace it, you know, 1.2 acres at a time. But again, these the wetlands that they're creating aren't necessarily equal. The functionality of what they're talking about knocking out is huge. And this is such an important piece to our ecosystem that, you know, the 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 damage can't be undone. You can't unring that bell. So uh, for folks who are listening on the pod or uh, on AM radio, you know, if they want to call their state reps or, mm-hmm. you know, elections are coming up, maybe they want to figure out where their representatives are and decide if they're going to support them or somebody else or if they're going to write a letter to the editor or however people want to be involved. Where's a good way for them to get some more information and what is the best thing for people to do? Well, uh, so a couple. So that's a great set of questions. Um, I have a couple answers to it. One is uh, Senator Larson and Representative Doyle are kind of some of the biggest environmental advocates in our state and they're really kind of taking the lead on this. Um, it's going through my committee, so I'm involved as well. But um, I would say contacting their offices, uh, Senator Chris Larson, who is obviously a member and big, you know, uh, friend of Citizen Action, but also Steve Doyle, who's a little further outside of Milwaukee, and actually is one of the few Dems left we have in a Republican seat. But uh, I would say contacting their offices would be a good first step. And as far as election time, you know, it's interesting. Senator Roth, who introduced this, whose area is heavily, heavily benefiting from the flood mitigation that his wetlands in the Fox Valley and Appleton areas produce is the lead author in the Senate on this. So if there are members or folks listening out in his neck of the woods, you should ask him what the, you know, what, what's going on. And I also know there's a lot of hunters out there who are really upset with him over this. So um, that's a good question. Uh, but I do think this is something that should be made a mainstream issue for the governors. They should be asked about this, what they're going to do you know, to help on this or where they're at with it, the gubernatorial candidates. I think everyone should ask their representatives because regardless of who's introducing it, it's still going to come in front of the whole body um, to vote on. So, yeah, this is probably the biggest and and the biggest environmental issue we're going to face this cycle and the one that they want to hide the most. So with that, we have got to go away for, unfortunately, we have to do commercials on the radio. Representative Rostov, we want to thank you so much yeah, for coming in and talking about this topic. We may have to have you or someone else on more as absolutely. this as this moves forward and and absolutely this will be a huge issue going forward in the elections so with that we got to get out of here and we'll see you this is the battleground wisconsin Welcome back to the battleground wisconsin we are citizen action you can find us at citizenactionwi.org so we're really thankful to Representative Brostoff for joining us in the previous segment to alert us, educate us about this bill. It's obviously something we're going to stay on top of. And again, we really want to encourage our listeners to reach out to your, to your local reps and uh, both your, your senator and state assembly person and make sure that they are aware of your opposition. So we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about elections. Uh, We know our listeners are very interested and are well aware of the important elections coming up in 2018. Last week, we spoke a little bit about the 2017 elections and sort of what they portended for 2018. Um, And this week, we had another Democratic candidate jump in with quite a bit of fanfare, and that's Malin Mitchell, who's uh, president of the Firefighters Union here in the state, announced that he was jumping in, and that makes him one of, I've got a long list here, Rebecca, Yeah. but I'm, I think it's 18, but uh, 
a lot of Democrats in, right? And a lot of folks uh, means that, one, Walker's probably vulnerable at some level. Yeah. <laughs> but that there's a lot of excitement on her side. So uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on Malin jumping in or any of the other candidates or how this is shaping up. And, and then we'll also talk after about some of the special elections coming up. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, the Republican spin is that the Democratic primary is a circus and there's all these people running. And isn't that like really embarrassing for the Democrats? Uh, but I like what Mandela Barnes, who I think is a Citizen Action Co-op member. Right? He is. He is. Mandela Barnes. Uh, said uh, on Twitter and it said to me in person, you know, that people would not be lining up to run against Governor Walker were he not vulnerable. And so it is, like you said, very exciting. Um, I think, you know, Malin running is a big deal. Um, he's someone who's run statewide before. He is well known. Uh, the right is already trying to frame his frame him as a quote union boss, uh, but what he really is a, is a working firefighter. He's a he's a working person, um, but with some real serious support. And so as soon as he announced, we saw that um, con a congressional member uh, Gwen Moore came out right away to support him. And I think you know now he's going around the state. I saw he was just in Green Bay. So we'll see what happens. Um, but I agree, it's shaping up to be a very dynamic and exciting Democratic primary. Um, that said. You know, I think it's going to be on all of us, you know, at the Working Families Party, at Citizen Action, and a number of our other allies to really keep issues front and center and push the Democrats to be bold in their candidacies, um, not only because we need people who are going to be champions on progressive issues, but also you can't win if you're not a champion. And if people haven't learned that by now, um, then we're going to help them learn that along the way, I think. It was definitely one of the takeaways from Virginia. We talked a bit about that last week. Robert mentioned one of our affiliates in Virginia that really um, actually did not work at all on the governor's race because they weren't necessarily inspired by him, but were inspired by a lot of these candidates who uh, had major wins. And these candidates included, you know, LBT, uh, LBTGQ. They included um, uh, union members, even an out Democratic Socialist, right, winning in some Republican type areas, but having, as you said, a bold agenda and being very clear about that. Um, Robert, your thoughts. I know um, you've been obviously tracking the governors. Now, by the way, it is, I said 18. It's, I believe, only 11 that are actually really truly declared out there running. But, um, Robert, I know we went to the uh, Malin uh, announcement. And just any of your thoughts on uh, Malin or any of the other candidates, or as what Rebecca said, the overall importance of this? Well, I think that we're in a situation where this is very positive, that there are a lot of candidates, and there may still be more. Um, I think the primary is going to make the candidate. There is no obvious candidate right now. One of the critiques of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin back to at least the 1990s was how few choices there were and how often we get the same choices over and over again. And that's all out the window now. But since no candidate's the obvious person to beat Scott Walker, like above the others, the primary will have to determine the candidate. But we have this opportunity with a late primary to have a very vibrant primary where a very strong candidate comes through because they are bold, because they can connect with voters. Now, we've been on the record, I've been on the record, that the way to beat Scott Walker is to run on a very bold, exciting agenda for a new kind of Wisconsin. Uh, and... and quite frankly, to not be identified with the status quo. And Walker can't avoid now, after two terms, being responsible for the status quo, as long as the Democrats doesn't seem like they're running like Jim Doyle or, or running on the path, right? And so that's what's going to determine this. This in action is putting, putting together 
an endorsement process that will be statewide that will be based on a bold, aspirational eight-year agenda for a very progressive governor, uh, the next fighting bottle of Follett. And we'll see how all the candidates do um, in, in, in that process. Uh, but you're gonna, the only way you're going to win is to be so exciting that you nationalize the race and you would galvanize progressives. You have small donations, not just here in Wisconsin, but across the country, because Walker gets national money, huge amounts of national money. And then the second thing, of course, is, is that you need to inspire a grassroots army and put together a kind of campaign to take advantage of that grassroots army uh, to win an election. But you still need a lot of money. You still need 10 to $15 million. So you need to be you know, a incredibly inspiring candidate. So as far as Malin Mitchell, he has a lot of those qualities. He's very charismatic. I mean, he's president of the firefighters. He, he's African American, uh, which I think is a, is a huge, these are all huge pluses. He was a hero in the uh, workers' rights protests in 2011, something he should not run away from, but should embrace, um, in my view. It's interesting. I mean, he, he was very effective. I mean, he's a very talented, charismatic guy, a very good orator. Um, he didn't really articulate any major policies at the announcement. And I'm not, I'm not a campaign manager. If I was advising him, which I'm not, I would have said to have at least a couple big, bold things that distinguish you in your announcement, because you get all this press and announcement. But maybe the plan is to roll them out separately over time. Uh, but I hope that happens, because he didn't keep, he has a lot of the tools, a lot of the ability to connect with voters, but he's going to have to run on some big, bold things in order to come through this primary and to be a real threat to Scott Walker. There's plenty of time to do that. So I'm not saying that I'm not trying to throw any kind of cold water. I'm just saying that he, as with the other candidates, it's to be determined what kind of issues they run on and how their campaigns develop. Some of the candidates have rolled out more issues that have been running long. And so I think Dana Walks has rolled out a lot of very good things. I think uh, Mike McCabe has. Uh, just for example, and I think Tony Evers is saying a number of interesting things. I've not actually sat down and decided which one is bolder, and I'll leave that to our endorsement process, but we have an opportunity to talk about a ton of bold initiatives that are coming from our citizen action members from across the state. Yeah, and just to piggyback off of that for a second, you know, um, the Wisconsin Working Families Party, our Wisconsin Revolution, Citizen Action of Wisconsin, all came together uh, a couple weeks ago to launch a new project we're calling Wisconsin's Choice. Uh, and if folks want to see more information or sign up, you could go to Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash W-I-C-H-O-O-S-E, or you can go to uh, dot org. Uh, but Lou Sosa um, from Citizen Action spoke at the press conference and on a video call we did with a bunch of uh, members of all three organizations. And this is wide open. Um, the more groups, the more people, the merrier. It's just getting started. But the hope is that we'll be kind of barnstorming around the state, having really raucous events where we are calling the shots, um, you know, to start not candidates and putting some of the issues that we care about front and center. So I think, you know, uh, the it really is on us to to make sure that we're pushing these candidates to be bold and, and progressive. Yeah, that's an area where all three of our organizations are fully aligned. We just we think there's a huge opportunity here and, and we have got to organize these candidates and not let them organize us in some ways. And and that's a that's actually a back and forth process. And so um, we're really excited. There'll be hopefully tons of events throughout the state, uh, our, our Wisconsin Revolution. And all, between all three of our groups, we have lots of different areas where we think we're going to be able to put on different kinds of events and activities. So we'll be watching for those next year. We're going to have a whole 
whole bunch of them, and hopefully we can really help define this election. And as Robert said, right, really have this election be about big, bold ideas uh, that can fundamentally change the party and change what it takes to win. And and, and this is the big piece, right? Like if you're going to raise and compete with the big money that Governor Walker is going to have on the independent expenditure side, you're going to need to do what, similar to what Sanders did or say Randy Bryce, other candidates who have inspired people by their vision to give lots and lots of small donations. And and that isn't going to happen trotting out the same old stuff. So, and Virginia definitely told us that lesson. But uh, with that, uh, we have got to change gears a little bit as we uh, before we uh, roll into the break. Um, we, I do want to mention, we want to mention the expansion of uh, early voting in some important areas around the state. Uh, this week, Milwaukee announced that it is going to expand uh, significantly the number of sites. I believe previously it really had two or three uh, early voting sites um, and, and expand these so we can get more folks uh, register out voting early. Um, and I know Madison has done significant expansion and other, other communities and municipalities are and are looking into it. So that's why we brought it up. We want to encourage our listeners, if you live wherever you live, to be reaching out to your local electeds, your mayor, uh, you know, your alders, people at your municipality, and encourage them to expand early voting, uh, especially if your city is you know, a decent size, a micropolitan, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we should have these on college campuses. We should have them everywhere, tech colleges, multiple places, libraries. Uh, this is uh, critical. Yeah, and I'll just say quickly, because I'm sure Robert has something he wants to say about this, but uh, in Racine, uh, where we just won the mayor's race, uh, I know Mayor Corey Mason and Alderman John Tate both have expressed interest publicly and privately about expanding early voting. And so they should certainly hear from us because I'm sure most listeners have read the article that was, I think, in Mother Jones last month about how Racine is really ground zero for voter suppression for voters of color in Wisconsin. So there's a lot of work to do there. And hey, we're going to talk more about the subject right after the break, but we got to quick get out of here. We're going to hear from Robert on the backside. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we left, we were talking about uh, a number of communities expanding early voting sites. Uh, Milwaukee chose to do that this week. Madison has uh, expanded. Uh, they did that last cycle a number, but we'll continue to do that. Uh, Robert, your thoughts on, uh, uh, on this issue? Well, it's pretty simple. If you're a progressive, that is democracy good and oligarchy and corporate domination bad, right? And conservatives just fit those. And so the reason they want to make it harder to vote is so fewer people actually vote, and therefore government is controlled by, by, by the wealthiest uh, 1% of Americans and, and, and the largest corporations in this country. And so it's a pretty simple thing. It's a, it's a kind of a Jim Crow, and that Jim Crow, because it, well, it's racialized, but also because... It is about making sure that people are powerless in our society. If they don't vote, then they have less influence and power. Their views are not expressed in government. You add to that the campaign finance system, the rigged maps, uh, the immense amount spent on lobbying by these corporations and by interests like the Koch brother interests, like Americans for Prosperity and others, uh, then you create something that's not really a democracy. And so... Of course, when we, when we have uh, people who are progressively minded and empower the local level, they should expand early voting dramatically, and this should be a priority. And I think this is all made possible by a lawsuit 
uh, that Citizen Action of Wisconsin and One Wisconsin Institute partnered on and which won and was still in federal court and rolled back Walker's restrictions on early voting. Uh, we were a little disappointed when we won the case in 2016 that cities like Milwaukee didn't create a lot more locations for voting. They could have done a lot more, which really looks bad now if you look at the election outcome, right? And so they need to, to do it now, and every municipality should be doing it. And quite frankly, um, any uh, fair-minded conservative who actually believes everyone should, should, should vote and just make our democracy, they should do it too. I would love to see um, a counterbalance to the uh, right-wing agenda that currently dominates the Republican Party that's attempting to disenfranchise people and reduce people's participation in our democracy, which is supposed to be a fundamental tenet of this country and one of the things uh, that, that one of the things we've contributed, quite frankly, uh, to the world in the last 250 years. So with that, we actually want to also talk about some special elections that are coming up. Um, there are two special elections where there's going to be a primary in December, assuming, and we generally assume in these kinds of cases there will be primaries. I want to say it's December 19th. Yep, yep December 19th. And uh, one of these places is in Racine. We've talked about Corey Mason, uh, the state rep from that area, is now the new mayor of Racine. And so that seat has opened up, and we already have a, a candidate who's announced. Uh, Rebecca, I know you have a little bit more. You've been doing a lot of work down in the Racine area. Yeah, there's actually two uh, candidates who've announced, uh, and this is kind of um, one of those rare, exciting races where you have two great progressive candidates. Uh, so uh, Alderman John Tate II, uh, African-American alder, 32 years old, full-time social worker, advocate for $15 an hour for, as I mentioned in the last segment, expanding voting, um, really um, progressive guy. And then another wonderful candidate, uh, Greta Neubauer, um, you know, her father is a former state rep. She herself is brilliant organizer, um, also very progressive. So for folks listening from Racine, you've got two really good choices. And yes, the primary is December 19th. The general is in January. I think it's January 16th. You want to vote in both, but the primary is going to be the real race here. Uh, and then the other special election is SD10 um, in the Northwest out in St. Croix. And the first Democrat to announce is this woman, Patty Schachner, yeah. uh, who is the uh, medical examiner for St. Croix, a former um, town board member, current school board member, uh, very much a public servant in, in a number of ways. And I think, you know, you had mentioned, Matt, in the last segment, uh, the results coming out of Virginia and just la uh, two weeks ago, the election that we had. And I'm very interested to see what happens with this seat. Um, and how well we do, uh, given, you know, given that reality two weeks ago, you know, what does that portend for the midterm elections uh, in Wisconsin and, and across the country? Yeah, and, and just so folks know a little bit about these two seats, obviously the, uh, the seat in Racine is a solidly Democratic seat. So as Rebecca said, the primary is, is everything, uh, whereas SD10 is a Republican seat. It used to be more of a, um, a, a swingable seat, but it was one that got more Republican through gerrymandering. Uh, but it is one where, as uh, Rebecca mentioned, if it's like Virginia and everything goes in our direction, that seat has a lot of these suburb, a lot of the voters that, that are of the same kind of demographic in Virginia that swung. And so, and these are folks who live in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, have moved there in the last couple decades uh, and become a significant part of that uh, electorate. So we shall see. That is, it would it would be a huge hail mary, mary of a touchdown uh, for Democrats to win that seat. But nonetheless, it is absolutely critical that uh, we do better. And that seat could look very different potentially after redistricting. 
I just want to mention one more thing about Racine um, and also Milwaukee since we are talking about voting. So I'm sure some folks might have seen the news reports last week, but uh, you know, a great shame of our state that uh, there was a study that came out that named the top five worst cities in America to be black, and both Racine and Milwaukee were on that list. And so, you know, really looking at our activism and our our um, electoral work and the, these elections, including the special election through that lens, I think is important, but in everything we do. And, you know, I think the study isn't news to anybody who lives in Milwaukee or Racine, certainly not anybody who's black who lives in Milwaukee and Racine, but the inequality uh, between black and white residents, uh, the wealth gap, the income gap. Uh, and, and this is not just for folks who are poor, but, you know, college educated people, middle class folks, you know, there's a real extreme inequality between our two communities. And so uh, that's something that, you know, we'll continue to talk about, I'm sure, in the podcast and, and express through our work. But I wanted to make sure I mentioned it. Before we go, I'm going to have Robert talk a little bit about some new polling that came out that we think is very interesting. But before I have Robert talk about that, I do want to quickly mention uh, and give a shout out to uh, Representative Gordon Hintz for uh, really leading the fight to stop a new piece of legislation that the Republicans are moving in Madison that would um, re reduce the regulations for rent-to-own companies. And I think we have talked a lot about rent-to-own and, and payday lenders and all of these types um, and so the Republicans are looking to roll back some of those those restrictions. We'll, t we'll, we'll hopefully talk a little bit more about this in the future, but we'll have a link on our website to that article if people want to get a little more educated on that. But with that, Robert, um, there was a poll that you just alerted all, all of our staff to this morning that has some fascinating, somewhat disturbing, but nonetheless fascinating results about how... Uh, facts and science matter to Republicans based on how much income they have. Yes, and this is uh, published in the New York Times uh, uh, today, I believe, but if not yesterday. And that is, you know, there's a traditional idea, and in fact, progressives believe strongly education is a good thing, and if we have more educated people who know more, better public information that will make better decisions, that's been, quite frankly, back to the 18th century, the, what used to be called the Enlightenment Project. And we've expanded education partly on those grounds. There's been the Wisconsin idea. But recent research is showing that it's working the other way with Republicans. So, for example, the polling says, looks at who worries about climate change a great deal, right? And if you look at Democrats, uh, people who have a high school education less, 45% of Democrats worry about climate a lot. And it goes up based on education. Some colleges, 48%. College or higher at 50%. Now, that's not actually that big a gap if you think about it. It's only 5%. The Republican numbers are starkly the opposite. 23% of Republicans with a high school education or less worry about climate a great deal. 8% worry about it a great deal of Republicans who are college educated or higher. So 23% if they're, if they're high school education or less, 8% uh, worry about climate if they're a Republican, if they're college education or higher. So the more they know, the better here they are, the more they don't, they're climate deniers, which is a stunning finding. And they find that the number in number of issue areas as well, uh, I, we won't dig into two right now, but the, this, this polling looks at a lot of different issues, that, including immigration and other issues and uh, gay marriage, et cetera. But what's interesting with this, and racism, for example, but what's fascinating here is, is that it reaffirms uh, uh, findings by a, a New York Times writer who wrote a book uh, called The Republican Brain named Chris Mooney, who a few years back, who found that 
educated Republicans were doing a lot of research on, on human, human psychological research, what they used, their, the, the additional ability to, to, uh, to have information and to wield information that comes with education, they use it to justify their biases and existing beliefs. So it's called motivated reasoning. So what happens is, is that they have more, more wherewithal to disbelieve and to argue against, to come up with rationalizations against something they don't want to believe. And that's what you see here in climate. So this means that the biggest problem is not uh, kind of your stereotypical Trump voter. That would be uh, people who haven't gone to college or white and vote for Trump. The biggest problem on climate is highly educated Republicans because they have, they have the greatest ability to rationalize and to convince themselves of untrue things that they want to believe, like there's no climate problem. Well, with that, Robert, we are going to wrap up this show. We want to thank our guest, Representative Jonathan Brostoff, for joining us and educating us on the new wetlands destruction bill. And as always, we want to thank Brian Wooldridge, our producer, who makes it happen every week. And we will see you next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.